would invite you to stand with me as we read this morning's text. As we do, uh, this would be a great time um, for the kids to go ahead and make their way toward um, the kids' programming this morning. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members with a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. passing the same rumors when I was your age. But if all the girls did, how come I always ended up with ones who didn't? But it's all different now. I don't know. They wrote Fanny Hill in 1742, and they haven't found anything new since. Who's Fanny Hill? Go to bed. That's who Fanny Hill is. Ready, honey? Thank you, dear. Oh, boy, am I ready. Frank, I think maybe you're going to have to help me. You all right? Yeah, I'm all right, dear. terrible time to talk about it, but Larry's going oh, I've to... got a message for Larry. You tell him this is what it's all about. This is the real happening. Come on, Tommy. You want to know what love really is? Take a look around you. What are you two talking about? Take a good look at your mother. Not now. Yes, now. It's giving life that counts. Until you're ready for it, all the rest is just a big fraud. All the crazy haircuts in the world won't keep it turning. Life isn't the love in, it's the dishes and the orthodontist and the shoe repairman and round, round instead of roast beef. And I'll tell you something else. This isn't going to bed with the man that proves you're in love with him. It's getting up in the morning and facing the drab, miserable, wonderful, everyday world with him that counts. Are you all right, Mother? Yes, dear. Now, you kids get back to bed. Go on. Go to bed. having 19 kids is carrying it a bit too far, but if we had it to do over, who would we skip? You? All together now. On three. One, One two, three. Come on. 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 Come on.
get you to the hospital fast, the rest of it's going to be explained right here. We are shaped by hope. That's the series that we are in, and uh, what we're doing is we're taking some great passages in the scripture, and we're, we're talking about the hope that we have as followers of Jesus, and the reason we're doing that is, is this. What you believe about tomorrow actually shapes your life today, and so we've also along the way, as we've talked about hope, we've defined precisely what we mean by biblical hope. Uh, hope is not uncertainty. Hope is not I hope I win the game tonight, or something like that. No, no, no. Hope is biblically a life-shaping certainty of something that has not happened yet, but we, we know is coming. We know will happen. And so, as Christians, our hope is this life-shaping, joyous certainty that our future is the eternal love and glory of God in a new heaven and a new earth. And that hope shapes everything and every area of our lives even today. And so as we uh, wind up this series over the next uh, three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the ways specifically that this hope must utterly shape our lives as we live them every day. And so today we talk about sex and hope shapes the way we operate sexually. Now, uh, about a year ago, I was uh, talking about this same subject, and, and uh, at that time, our, our former staff member, Ian Johnson, was back for a visit, and he asked what the sermon was about, and I told him, and it just so happens that we're talking about the same thing today, and I told this story last year, but if you weren't here, it's worth repeating, and so he said, you know, he, he said, oh, the sermon's on sex, and he, re he recalled a time when he was a kid, maybe junior high, and his minister was giving a sermon on sex, and, and he remembers that the minister at the end of the sermon said that all the married people in the room had, a, had homework for the week, okay? And Ian, he's a little seventh grader, he's sitting with his parents, he knows what's coming, right? He's cringing, um, and sure enough, the assignment is to go home and have sex every day for the week. Now, it gets better than that, because... Then he said, the minister said, next week at church, if you understood the assignment, if you completed the assignment, then I want you to wear red to church next Sunday. And all week long, little seventh grade Ian is pleading in his mind, please, mom and dad, please don't wear red to church. I do not want to know that you completed the assignment, that you understood the assignment. Now, I, I will probably never not share that story when I talk about this subject because I feel a little like seventh grade Ian today. Not because I'm afraid to wear red next week. I'm a chief cook. Come on, right? Uh, I guess you'll decide why I'm wearing, wearing red. No, it's because this topic is such a monster to try to tackle. There's so much to try to cover in one sermon, and there's no way to, to wrap it all up, put a bow on it. And so I'm probably not going to cover everything that you might have in your head today. And so I've kind of come to find that the best thing is just to stick with the text. There, there are so many bunny trails that we could go down today. I'm just going to stick with what Paul says to some of his readers in the city of Corinth about their sexuality. And so first, let, let's kind of set the table with Paul's readers here. These are 
Christian people who are living in the city of Corinth. Corinth was about 100,000 people in that day. Now, that, that may not seem like a lot, but Rome, the capital of the world in that day, was only a million, okay? So they didn't have great, these are the biggest cities at the time. And uh, Corinth was a major player, a major city, a kind of place that it's, it, it was one of those places that nobody's really from. Everybody kind of goes there. Everybody moves there, but nobody's really from there. And they, they moved there for, for business and for the arts and for entertainment and for the culture and for, for the vibe. And so not surprisingly, Corinth becomes known as the sexual capital of the ancient world. And one of the central parts of this reputation was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite that, that was in Corinth. Uh, Aphrodite was the sex goddess of ancient Rome. If you've ever heard the term aphrodisiac, it comes from the word Aphrodite from this goddess. The temple uh, of Aphrodite sat on top of a hill right next to the city. And so it was really hard to miss. It was the central kind of part of the city. And in the temple of Aphrodite, sex was worshipped. There were a thousand prostitutes in that temple. And every night in the evening hours, every they would come down the hill from the temple and the, the people of the city would, would go towards the temple and they would mingle with these prostitutes and they would worship Aphrodite by having sex. And so sex was such a part of the vibe in Corinth that the actual word Corinth became a verb itself. To Corinthianize meant to have loose morals to the point where you would sleep with anything that moves. And so that's normal life in Corinth. And in that existence, okay, people begin to hear the good news of Jesus. And they start following them. Why? Well, he raised from the dead. I mean, why would you not, right? And so they believe in Jesus. They, they, they start following Jesus. And yet they have this ingrained pattern of life that they've been living that says, that sex is worship. It's all around them. And these, these patterns are deeply grooved into their lives. And so Paul writes to these people and says, we have a hope in Jesus. We have a certain future ahead of us. And that future that we have ahead of us has certain implications even now for how we use our bodies, even today. If anything is to shape what you do with your body, it has to be the gospel. Now, we can listen to uh, the kind of place Corinth was, and we can say, well, that was then, right? That's easy for us to say. I mean, we don't have a temple on a hill with a thousand prostitutes having worship services every night, right? We don't, we don't have a, a sign like this anywhere that says Sin City. I mean, we're different, right? Right? They had a thousand prostitutes. What do we have? We have... We have hundreds of thousands of websites. We do. That are about nothing but sex. 60% of all global pornographic websites are hosted right here in the United States. Are we really different? In Corinth, what they did was they mingled and they shuffled through all the temple workers and they picked one. What do we do? We take a little box out of our pocket and we open up an app and we can shuffle through potential hookups. Swipe right. That's what we do. Do you realize that Tinder is 10 years old? It's been around for a decade. 
There are over 1.6 billion, billion with a B, swipes per day just on that one app. People looking to mingle. Now, before I throw Tinder completely under the bus, I'm sure that there are some people on Tinder that are using it just to find a soulmate and just to, you know, not to hook up, really. There are like three of them. And um, the rest, the rest, like, you know. Um, back in the Stone Age of the Internet, there was a site in 2015, that's the stone age of the internet, uh, seven years ago, there was a site whose sole purpose was to facilitate extramarital affairs. Maybe you've heard of Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison was the, was the site that you went to if you wanted to cheat on your spouse. It was a po popular site. We did not know exactly how popular until the site was hacked. The site was hacked, and all the client information, all the people who had registered with the site, that information leaked out into the world. And what we discovered was that in the U.S., there were only three zip codes in the entire United States that did not have a registered Ashley Madison account. There were two zip codes in Alaska and one in New Mexico. 94 people, 113 people, and 269 people lived in those three zip codes. Everywhere else in the United States had registered Ashley Madison accounts so people could cheat sexually on their spouse. But we're not in Corinth, right? We don't live in Corinth. No. We need to hear what Paul has to say just as much as they did. And, and to do that, what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a sermon in a sentence today that we'll repeat a few times so that you get it. If we boiled everything that we just read, everything Paul is saying here down to one short, memorable sentence, it would be this. Do not do with your body what you are unwilling to do with your whole life. Don't do with your body what you are unwilling to do with your whole life. And as we dig into what Paul wrote, the first thing that kind of stands out is how outrageously revolutionary Paul's words would have been for the people in Corinth. And so Paul gives the, them views about sex and singleness and marriage all through chapter 6 and 7 that were unprecedented compared to what they, the, they were used to. And what they would have had in their minds about these things is also in the text. Um, and Paul uses it. Um, he puts in the text two popular views that would have been held by even Christian people in the church in Corinth. And so to, to give you those two views, I've kind of put characters on each one of them. The first view is uh, Mrs. Grundy. Mrs. Grundy. Now, I don't know if you know about Mrs. Grundy or if you have ever heard about Mrs. Grundy, but there's an old play that has an unseen older female character named Mrs. Grundy. And she is narrow-minded, she's very orthodox, she's very straight-laced, uh, she's a prude, we could say that. Uh, she's the church lady, we could also say it that way. She believes that sex is straight from Satan, right? That's how, that's how it is. If you've ever, uh, if you've never heard of Mrs. Grundy, just go uh, in your phone or somewhere, just type prude and then look the thesaurus up and Mrs. Grundy will, will pop up. Um, and that was one of the views in the Corinthian church. There were Mrs. Grundy's in the church in Corinth, and they said this, sex is bad, sex is evil, sex is defiling. We did not get that far, but in the beginning of chapter 7, Paul actually quotes this view. He says, 
concerning the matters you wrote about, here's the first one. It is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that's not Paul's belief. He's just restating their belief that sex should be shunned. And so there are some people in the Corinthian church that had fallen for the idea that if you just avoid sex altogether, then you are more spiritual, you are more holy than other people. Avoid sex, even in marriage, and you will be closer to God. That, that, was, their, that was their thought. And, and their, their thinking was, this might be necessary for procreation, but if you're holy, then that's all sex will be for. Sex is dirty and nasty and vile and wrong, and so save it for the one you love. That, that was the idea. Now, most people outside the walls of the church today are convinced that Mrs. Grundy's view is the Christian view. And that's, that's unfortunate, but it's really not hard to see why that is, why that might be, because some, some of our Christian preaching and teaching is, is so negative, right? Uh, e- even my statement today, do not do with your body what you're unwilling to do with your whole life. I mean, that, that's formed up in a negative way. And so uh, we are full of warnings in the church. Don't, don't watch that. Don't, don't touch that. Don't think about that. Don't click on that. Don't search for that. Don't go there. Keep yourself pure. Wait for marriage. And it's all for good reason, and we'll get to some of those in a minute. But can't, we can go overboard with that, right? We can go overboard with that side of the message, and it can become unbalanced and then in turn misconstrued and contorted until people come away with the idea that what the church really teaches about sex is that it's bad altogether. It's a necessary evil, and we're better off without it. That's Mrs. Grundy. The second view was exactly the opposite. And so for this uh, view, I'm going to put the character Hugh Hefner, uh, who is a real person, by the way. Uh, Hugh Hefner built a total empire, a kingdom uh, for himself around the idea of sex. And he would always wear uh, this smoking jacket robe kind of thing that always sent this message that in his kingdom, sex was available 24-7. Whenever there was an appetite for it, it should be had. And that's exactly the view that some people had, even in the Corinthian church. Uh, look at verse 13 that we just read. Paul quotes this slogan that they had for this kind of take. Uh, he says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Again, this is not Paul's belief. He's restating their belief, what they believe, that sex is just an appetite. Sex is just like eating. When you get hungry, you eat. It's a bodily function. It's perfectly normal. It's simply biological. And so uh, the argument went this way, that since sex is also a bodily function, just like eating, therefore it's no different. It's biology. We shouldn't argue with biology. And so if you feel like it, you should have it. And that view comes out of a very uh, Greek understanding that the material and physical in this world is temporary, uh, and therefore it's not important. People in that day said it's not what you do with your body that matters, it's only your soul that matters. And so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. If you, if you need sex, then have sex with whoever. There was a proverbial saying in Corinth and in the, in the Roman world at that time, the body is a tomb. So it doesn't matter. The Stoic philo- uh, philosopher said, I am a poor soul shackled 
to a corpse. Now, when you, when you start to buy into that, what it means is that the body at the end of the day does not matter. So you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. That's huge. And so in the church, in the church, there are these two extremes. On one hand, some Christians said it's just an appetite. It's just as natural as eating. It's just body parts. It does not affect your soul, so don't fight it. Just give into it and roll on. On the other hand, some Christians were saying, no, 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 no. It's bad. It's defiling. Sex is evil. Even in the bonds of marriage, we should stay away from it in order to stay holy. And that's 2,000 years ago. But man, doesn't that sound like today? I mean, people are in both of those kind of camps in our culture. Paul says both of those views are completely wrong. Let me, let me give you the sermon one, one more time. One sentence. Don't do with your body what you are unwilling to do with your whole life. And so here's, here's the instruction from Paul. It's in verse 18. He says this, and going to give you the punchline at the end, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee. The, what is sexual immorality? The English is kind of vague, because we, we could list a ton of things that we think should be included in this word sexual immorality, that, but the Greek term is not vague at all. It is very specific. Uh, porneia is the word, and you can imagine we get the word pornography from that word, but that's not what the word means. The word means specifically to have sex with somebody that you are not married to. Now, it's, it's important here that, to know that Paul could have used a word that meant adultery, okay? Which is to be married to someone and then have sex with somebody that you're not married to outside of that relationship. But he did not use that word. He used this word, porneia, because... It means any kind of sex outside of marriage, whether you are married or not. And so this is not just a word to people who are married that might wander out into the streets of Corinth to the temple of Aphrodite, right? This is a word to all people that sex has a special reserved place in the commitment of marriage. And so, by the way, uh, a, a very common practice in the Corinthian culture was to, to procreate with your spouse and then to recreate with other people. That's how they functioned. So your spouse was for kids, but other people were for fun. That was Corinth. But the word includes everyone, married or not. And so we could read it this way. Flee from the practice, flee from the practice of having sex with somebody that you are not married to. Not, Paul doesn't say, it's a good idea to refrain. No, no, no. He says, have nothing to do with sexual out activity outside of the covenant of marriage. Flee from the idea of it. Now, why that instruction? And Paul gives us uh, the, the main reason, one of the main reasons. It's wrapped up in this verse. In uh, verse 16, it's, it's found in a phrase. Here's, here's what 16 says. And do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For 
as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, I don't want you to get hung up on the word prostitute and automatically give yourself a pass, okay? Uh, that line applies to all of us. The, the modern way to say this would be if you unite yourself to someone who isn't covenanted to you and you to them in the bonds of marriage, now that could be a single person or a married person, uh, either way, then Paul says, don't you know, don't you know you will become one flesh with that person? And so the point Paul is driving at is that sex becoming one flesh with somebody is more than just physical. It's more than just body parts. There's something deeper going on. And the, and the word that helps us here is this word join, join. Do you not know to join yourself? And the word means, literally, it means glued together, glued together. Now, I have just enough Woodstock experience to be dangerous uh, from John Stark in the seventh grade. And so um, I don't know a lot about woodworking, but one thing I did learn was that Elmer's glue works. If you want to join two pieces of wood together, it really doesn't take anything special, just Elmer's glue. And when you glue those boards up together and you do it correctly and that glue dries, the bond that is created in that seam of the wood is actually stronger than all of the wood around it. And so if you go after you bond that seam together, if you go and try to break that seam, you can't do it. You'll actually end up breaking everything around the glue joint before you break the bond. And that's the picture that Paul is giving us. Paul says sex is like Elmer's glue. And so we could read Paul's line this way. Do you not know that when you have sex with somebody who isn't covenanted in marriage to you, then you've glued yourself to them in a way that is permanent and cannot be undone? Sex unites us, not, not just in body, but in, in spirit and soul as well. Sex acts like glue in a relationship. It, it doesn't matter what the relationship looks like, whether it's one that is deep or lasting or whether it's one that is very short overnight. In any relationship where sex is introduced, a welding takes place in the lives of those two people. And long after the body parts are separated, there's something that remains that cannot ever be undone. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, each time a man and woman enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond is established between them that must be, get this, eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And we get that. Oh man, that, that's easy to see. Just go ask the person that was sexually abused as a child. Go ask the woman that was desired for her body but for nothing else. Go ask the man who thought chasing sex would bring him happiness in life. All of those experiences, all the body parts are long separated, okay? And so if it was just about body parts, then they would be able to forget it and sweep it under the rug. They could move on easily, but the people who have lived those experiences can't do that. They can't forget the pain and the hurt and the regret, it never goes away, it lasts their whole life because sex is not just about bodies. The two become one flesh, and two becoming one 
cannot be unwon. It's kind of like when two eggs are scrambled. There's no going back to the two separate eggs, right? And it's the same with sex. Something mysterious has happened. Something, something deeply spiritual is taking place in this union. And when we get one together, when we get glued together sexually in the wrong way, the hurt lasts for a lifetime. People talk about having safe sex, but here's the truth. You cannot put a condom on your heart. You can't do it. And so sex in any circumstance is designed to transform us. It's not just body parts, but it involves our whole person. I think the, the message version that Joel was reading from earlier puts this perfect in Corinthians chapter 6. It says this, sex is more than skin on skin. That's right. And that idea becomes the foundation of Paul's radical new view that he gives to the Corinthians uh, in Corinth, to the church Christians in Corinth. Because sex is more than physical and it's more than skin and there's something else going on, there's a gluing that's taking place, then sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to the one and to only the one to whom you belong. And so on one hand, sex is not evil. On the other hand, it's, it's not about self-gratification. But Paul says sex is the way to do radical self-donation, self-giving. Sex is God's invented way for you to give yourself to somebody so deeply that it results in a personal transformation and completion. And that's a long-winded way to say this. There must never be a physical oneness without, without also a whole life oneness. That's what the twist was about. Whole life oneness. God meant sex to be a sign of what you've done with your whole life. Or we could say it this way, don't do with your body what you are unwilling to do with your whole life. When two people uh, come together uh, in a marriage covenant, what they say to each other is, uh, they look each other in the eyes and they say, uh, for the rest of my life, all of mine is yours, all of yours is mine, and we share everything. And, and sex is an echo of that promise. To be physically naked and vulnerable to another person is to act out the promise that I've already made to a marriage partner when I say all of me is all of yours. And so to, to pull sex out from that umbrella, out from, from that uh, framework, is to have sex without a lifelong promise, it's to rob sex of its purpose of gluing people together. Sex without having a covenanted marriage relationship is to say to another person this, I want your body, but I do not want you. I want you physically, but I don't want you fully. I want, I want the pleasure of being with you, but I don't want to be tied up. I don't want to be tied up emotionally or legally or socially or financially. I want to give you my body, but I don't want you to give I don't want to give you me, and I want to have your body, but I don't want to have you. That's what it says. And for people who were built for love and then given the gift of sex to strengthen that seal and, and that love 
to say, I want your body, but I don't want you is as unnatural as it looks. Sex is designed as a way to say to somebody, I belong to you and you belong to me and you are not your own and I am not my own. We are one. We are one flesh. That's why at the end of the wedding, we say what God has joined together, let man not separate because that's natural. That's the way God made us to be. Do not do with your body what you are unwilling to do with your whole life. Now, this is a series on hope. <laughs> where's, where's the hope come in, Dusty? What's, what's going on here? How, how does our certain future as believers even affect how we use our bodies today? Now, there's several things here. We have hope and certainty. Number one, that God will raise our bodies. That's what Paul says. Just like, just like God raised the body of Christ, he's going to raise these bodies too. And if our bodies that are joined to Jesus, do you note that in the text? Oh my goodness, that joined word, there's the Elmer Slew again. We're not just, you know, he, Paul just doesn't talk about joining to some, somebody else sexually. He says we are joined, it's the same word, with Jesus. We are glued to Jesus. And if we're glued to Jesus, and our bodies that are glued to Jesus are going to be raised in the future, if they mean that much then, then they certainly matter now. And what we do with our bodies now has consequences for them. So we, our hope is that God will raise our bodies. Here's, here's another hope that Paul gives us. We have hope, we have certainty, certainty that we are the temple. We are the temple. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the whole church is the temple of God. And now here in, in chapter 6, he says that even we as individuals are the temple of God. The whole point of a temple is that the temple was where God lived. And so Paul says, we are now the temple. God lives in us. He's taken up residence in us. He's not, think about what that means. It means that he lives in you and he's not, just there when you're praying or when you're reading your Bible or when you're singing in church. No, no, no. He's there always. He's in you, living with you, always. And so what you do with that temple that God lives in matters. Here's number two. We have hope, we have certainty that we have been bought been bought. Paul says with a price. We've been purchased at great expense. And it's his way to reference the cross, that on the cross, Jesus paid the price of his own life, of his own blood to rescue human beings like you and like me, ordinary sinners, muddled sinners, great sinners, and small sinners. And I want you to think about what that line means, that we were bought with a great Price. We were bought with a great price. Think about if you go out and pay a lot of money for a dream house. Let's put it in that context. You find the perfect house. You go and you spare no expense. And right now it takes uh, you know a lot of expense, right? And you find this perfect house. You don't you don't move into that perfect house and then begin spray painting silly patterns all over the kitchen. You don't move into that house and then get up a game of baseball in the, in the room with all the bay windows. 
don't move into that house and then start a fire in the middle of the living room. You don't do that. You'd never think to do any of those things. Your kids might. (laughs) And if they do, they'll pay the price, right? But you would never do that. Why? Because you spent so much on this house. You don't want to damage it. Just like that dream house, you have been bought. You have been purchased at the greatest expense. There isn't one person in the room today that has not been wrecked when it comes to sex, that has not made mistakes when it comes to sex, and yet Jesus paid the price to buy you back. He redeemed you. And I want you to take time, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in Him, I want you to take time to remind yourself of how special you are. You are God's dream house. He lives in you. Now live like it. Paul ends this way. Glorify God in your body. God, today may we do with our bodies only what we're willing to do with our whole self. Sex is a hint of who we are and what we believe. It's a good gift given to us so that we can serve another person. But if we, if we use it as leverage for our own ends, instead of using it in love for another that we've pledged everything to, then things go wrong. And we are guilty today of things going wrong, of unruly sexual desire that has deformed us, that has bypassed love, that has eroded our relationship with you. Cleanse us. Would you wash us clean? Would you heal us from sexual sins that we've committed and those committed against us? And then would you help us to begin to have the highest view of sexuality? May we see sex as a sign of how good you are to us. And when we use it properly, may it strengthen and serve signify our human capacity to give and receive love. Would you keep us in Jesus today who is the lover of our souls and the one who took nails and shed blood for our sexual sin and it's in his good and loving name that we pray and everybody said.